Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Vacation alert from the three-row Jeep Grand Cherokee L. Mama and Papa want to go hiking. Los abuelos want to relax at the beach. And the kids want to go to the amusement park. With seating for up to seven, you and your loved ones can enjoy all these adventures and more. Jeep. There's only one. Visit Jeep.com to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. Have you ever struggled to put that packet of biscuits back in the cupboard after opening them? Or found yourself dialing for your favourite takeaway more often than you'd like to? If so, it sounds like you've been under the influence of ultra-processed food, or UPF. But what exactly is it, and what does it do in our bodies when we consume it? In this episode, I speak to Dr Chris Van Tulliken, BBC TV presenter and infectious diseases doctor based at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London. He tells me about the surprising discoveries he made about UPF when writing his latest book, Ultra Processed People. Why do we all eat stuff that isn't food? And why can't we stop? Your book, Ultra Processed People, is all about ultra-processed food and the effect it has on our health. So I think the best place to start here then is what exactly is ultra-processed food? So we have processed food, which I think is a bit unclear in a lot of people's mind, but then ultra-processed food, which is another layer. So can we unpick that uh, first off? Absolutely. So food processing is ancient. We've been doing it as a species for a million, more than a million years. It shaped our bodies, it shaped our guts. And the way we can think about food is there are broadly three types. There's whole food, which is like an oyster, or milk. Milk is a really good example of a whole food. You can drink it straight out of the cow. You shouldn't do that because you might get brucellosis, but you can. You can process milk into butter, cheese, yogurt, and we've been doing that, we're sure, for many thousands of years. So there are these pottery shards found in the desert in North Africa, where there used to be pastoralists before it turned to desert, 
seven, 8,000 years old, and they've got traces of butter fats and dairy fats. So we've been processing milk for a long time. And that brings loads of advantages. And those processed foods aren't associated with diet-related disease. Ultra-processed food has a formal scientific definition. It's a category of food. And the definition was created to try and understand why our diet is doing us so much harm. Because diets now replace smoking as the leading cause of early death. So there's this very, very long formal scientific definition, very widely recognized by the UN, boils down to this. If it's wrapped in plastic and it contains an additive that you don't find in a typical domestic kitchen, then it is ultra-processed food, also known as UPF. So you mentioned additives there. So what are we talking about when we talk about additives? So uh, additives are the thing that everyone, has, as I've been talking about this book, people get very fixated on the additives because we, we all sort of worry about the additives. If you read on your label things like emulsifiers, stabilizers, colorings, flavorings of any kind, sweeteners, flavor enhancers, anything with an E number, those are additives. And some of them, we do have some early evidence that they are associated with health problems. So there's some evidence with color and attention. And some of the emulsifiers, there's really quite robust research linking them to bowel inflammation and effects on the, the microbiome. Similarly, some of those stabilizers like xanthan gum. So if you look at your supermarket bread, I mean, emulsifiers are in, in so many different things. You'll find them in your drinks, you'll find them in your supermarket bread, and sometimes they're called things like E472E, sometimes it'll be called datem, sometimes they're called tartaric acid esters of mono and diglycerides of fatty acids. Those additives, some of them do us direct harm. For the most part, they're just a sign that your food is ultra-processed. They're a proxy for loads of other things. And it's the other things that are done to the food that we think are more, are more concerning. So ultra-processing includes the mechanical things that are done to our food, so extrusion and maceration and the extraction of molecular oils. It includes thermal and chemical processing like interesterification or hydrogenation of oils, making turning liquid plant oils into solid fats, which, as every baker knows, are much more useful. And it also includes things like marketing. So marketing is one of the things that we think drives excess consumption. And excess consumption is a big property of these foods. And the other thing that's a little bit tricky for people who are science-minded to grasp about the definition of ultra-processing is it includes the purpose of this food. So with almost every traditional food you can think of, whether it's, it's a butter or a lasagna, there is an ultra-processed version of it, a lasagna in a ready meal with a pack with xanthan gum and stabilizers in it. A butter would be a plant oil margarine. And the purpose of the lasagna and the margarine is about generating growth and profit for food companies. The purpose of your traditional butter and lasagna is those things were invented by female scientists primarily over the last few hundred millennia, and they were invented to nourish and to uh, provide provide nutrients for friends and family and communities. So that the purpose is really important of the food. So you mentioned their supermarket bread. So I think this is really interesting. I think a lot of people will, th will see like a, a piece of plastic American cheese and they'll they'll know. Yeah, straight right. off that, that's ultra processed. But some some of them are hide, sort of hiding in plain sight, aren't they? I think that's right. So there's loads of it. There's obvious junk food, you know, the, the high street fried chicken, the burgers, the, all the fast food chains that we all eat at. But lots of our staple foods are now ultra processed. So there's a, been a really interesting thing happening since I published the book. 
a big nutrition charity has released a statement saying, you know, some ultra-processed foods can be healthy, and their example is beans on toast. And obviously, beans on toast is our national dish. And what's really important for me is not to demonize beans on toast and certainly not to demonize the people who eat it because this is the only affordable, available food for loads and loads of people. It's intriguing, though, that our bread is not really bread anymore and that our national dish and beans on toast is a perfectly thing to feed kids i I feed my own kids two nights ago they had beans on toast and fish fingers as dinner all of it ultra processed not i'm not worried about our intake of that it is a symptom of our food system in this country though that that it would be absolutely impossible to imagine going and buying haricot beans mixing them with tomatoes and salt and baking beans at home. And in fact, my mother did this the other night, and I was talking to a journalist this morning, and they just couldn't believe that my mum had done this. I mean, most of us don't even know where to get these beans. Part of the the replacement of our traditional foods with these ultra-processed products has been about convenience, and our whole diet has now been replaced to the extent that this makes up on average 60% of what we eat, 60% of our calories come from UPF. And kids, it's much higher. So a very typical diet for a teenager might be 70 or 80% of their calories from UPF. So the project is not to make everyone worried about beans on toast, but we should be a bit concerned that our supermarket bread is not really bread anymore. The bread is such a great example because everyone's got it at home. And people can do this experiment. If if you can afford it, go and buy a a loaf of real bread from your local bakery. Get sourdough or any, any traditional bread will do. The supermarket bread is a spongy foam. And that's partly because the emulsifiers and some of the stabilizers and the way the wheat gluten is added later and the process used to mix it. It's incredibly soft. And softness, we think, is one of the main properties of ultra-processed food that drives excess consumption. And, And it does lots of other stuff as well. But one of the most studied effects is it drives weight gain. It's so soft that we eat it before our gut hormones have time to catch up and tell us that we're full. And if you have an eating race of supermarket bread versus an equal amount of sourdough, you'll find the sourdough takes you at least twice as long to consume. And real food is is much less energy dense, it's much wetter, and it's much chewier. And we know that the, the science is really incontrovertible on softness and texture. Physical processing of food massively affects our hormone response And so this is food that we think is interfering with our ability to feel full. So we're essentially being sold food that isn't food. So how did we reach this this point? You know, how did we get here? You said like we've been processing food for millions of years. How have we ended up at this point? So it's happened quite gradually. Initially in the 19th century, butter was the first kind of staple food where cost was a real public health problem, actually. So butter, you have to grow a cow, milk a cow, process the milk and then store the butter and the butter goes a bit rancid relatively quickly but it's always been expensive and people like butter because it makes all the boring carbs palatable and what was happening in the states is there was a lot of waste plant oil from cotton gin so cotton seeds like all seeds are full of oil but cotton seed oil is quite toxic which is why we don't eat it you never have cold virgin cotton seed oil it contains things that taste foul and interfere with fertility But a process was developed where if you um, refine the oil, bleach it and deodorize it and then hydrogenate it so you can can add more hydrogen atoms to the, the carbon chains, you can turn it from this very bitter liquid oil into a solid fat and make margarine. So initially there was 
There was a sort of public health interest in making cheap, widely available food. But as our food system has developed and become more what we call financialized, as the, the food companies have become more and more consolidated, fewer and fewer transnational companies feed us now. By some, by some measurements, it's really four companies. By other, you, you might say there are sort of 15 to 20 companies, but it's a very small number of enormous, enormously powerful companies who aren't, it's not that they're not concerned with public health, it's that they actually can't be concerned with public health. So they're, they have legal obligations to make money for their owners, and that's that's the way they work, it's, it's what they have to do. And so considerations of whether or not particular ingredients are healthy are, are a bit irrelevant, so long as they're acting within the law. But also there's now an incentive to develop these extremely convenient quasi-addictive foods. And so the food is kind of iterated through these design processes where many of us find that we actually can't stop eating it anymore. So initially, in the, the major changes happened in the States with the invention of the microwave, the widespread use of refrigeration, and also changes in the labor force. You know, women had entered the labor force and people wanted convenient food. And as the arms race between the companies ratchets up to, to compete for a, a very tight margin market space, the products become more and more and more palatable, ever cheaper, ever, sub, ever, ever cheaper ingredients substituted, and ever more aggressive marketing campaigns, which is why now, from the second you leave your house to, to when you go to bed at night, you are continuously sold snacks and foods and products that really are about driving excess consumption. We, we have enough food in this country. We've had enough food for a very, very long time. And the only way to generate financial growth is to sell people more food than they need. And, and I think lots of listeners, food addiction is really controversial. Pe people have felt very uneasy with food addiction because the only thing you can use as a strategy once you acknowledge something's addictive is abstinence. And so you can't be abstinent from food. What the research is really clear about now is the, and, and, and listeners will recognize this, the only foods that people really struggle to stop eating and binge on our ultra processed foods. And for some people, it will be pizzas, other people, it will be, uh, you know, these ultra processed pizzas, biscuits, cakes, chocolate, confectionery, crisps. It, it could be a wide range of products, but those are the foods we feel addicted to. So I think it's, it's sort of, we can't really talk about food without talking about the idea of calories, you know. So, especially you mentioned the microwave meals. So, a lot of them are called healthy option lasagna, low fat, low calorie. So what, what, where do they fit into this picture? So it's almost a rule that if something has a health claim on it, it's very likely to be ultra processed and therefore in the category of foods that we're really sure drive diet related disease. Calories are really important. So it is pretty much an iron law of of nutrition and metabolism. I don't think anyone serious contests this, that if you eat more calories than you burn, you will gain weight. And so calories are the problem. The difficulty is not figuring out how many calories we should eat. It's that we eat too many calories. So the example I use is my daughter, Lyra, if she has chocolate coated rice puffs for breakfast of any brand, she will eat, if you let her free pour, two or three adult servings. Now, if you could stick to a serving for a six-year-old, now that, that isn't on any of the packets what, what a five or six-year-old should eat or how much milk you should serve with it, then she might be able to stay within her guidance for fat, salt, and sugar. 
But the problem is because, as we said at the beginning, you, you, your body has way, it has a, a system of nerves and hormones that tell you when to stop. These foods get around that system, which is why they're so profitable. And so we end up consuming too many calories. And it is impossible for any normal person to keep track of their calories. Some, some people get quite good at it, but that's not how humans eat. It's not how any animals eat. You know, we, we shouldn't need labels to eat. So kind of one of the hypotheses of the book is really that, and, and this is pretty well borne out by the evidence, if you eat what I would call food, i.e. traditional foods, it could be tinned, canned, could be processed in lots of ways, but your body will naturally respond to that and you will feel full. And, and there's some evidence that if people switch to a diet like that, they will lose weight. I'm very cautious about that because I'm not trying to promise anyone weight loss with this book. But th there is... There is, I guess, at the heart of the book, an invitation to the reader to try and undergo an experience that I had writing it, which is that I was developing a research project with colleagues at University College London to study ultra-processed food, and I was the first patient in the trial, so I was, I was getting pilot data. So I went on a month of 80% ultra-processed food in my diet. And this is a normal diet for a UK teenager. I wasn't force-feeding myself. And over the course of the month, I had lots of different things happen to me. But about three quarters of the way through the diet, I was speaking to a colleague in Brazil, Fernanda Rauba, and she kept almost like a tick saying to me, you know, it's not food, Chris. It's an industrially produced edible substance. She kept underlining this. I hung up the call, went to order my dinner, which was takeaway fried chicken wings, I think, and I just couldn't eat it. And I recognized the taste. It hadn't changed. And yet I, I had been sort of freed from this addiction. And that process is quite well evidenced. I immediately thought of the, we've got loads of evidence with smoking that if people engage with, continue to smoke while they read about smoking, it's, it, can, it can flip from being an addiction into being disgust. And so because we're all part of this sort of big experiment we didn't volunteer for, part of the project of the book is, you know, participate with this food, eat it, feel it in your mouth, become a connoisseur of it. And you may find that the the strange lies that you experience in your mouth with gums replacing fats and sweeteners replacing sugar and flavor enhancers replacing proteins, you'll, be, you'll come to detect them and you'll, you'll sort of start to see through some of the lies on the box. And that, that for some listeners, that may kind of release them from an addiction. Other people may just decide they want to cut down. Other people, of course, are going to find they cannot afford to eat real food. And that that's the tragedy of this is I'm very reluctant to say to anyone, you know, avoid UPF because so, we spend so little of our household income on food because the cost of living crisis has squashed us down to spending about six, seven, eight percent of our, our total budget. We, we don't have money for food, basically. So you mentioned there sugar. And I think this is this is point worth um, worth investigating a bit further, because a lot of people, you know, we know we shouldn't eat too much sugar. But what's the relationship between sugary foods and EPFs? For a long time, since, since, since the, the turn of the century, really, people have been feeling that sugar changes our metabolism, that by altering our insulin levels, it promotes weight gain and fat storage, and a calorie of sugar is not the same as a calorie of anything else. Now, there's a bit of evidence for that, and there's a bit of evidence against that. I would say actually, that the evidence showing that that isn't true is extremely robust. And the jury is, insofar as any juries are in on anything in nutrition science, the jury is pretty much in, in that if you eat 500 calories of sugar, it's the same as 500 calories of fat. 
Now, if you go on a very low carb diet, you tend to lose weight if you can stick to the diet, and most people can't, because food becomes a bit less palatable without carbs. If you go on a very low fat diet and you stick to that, the same thing happens. So we've got loads of data on low fat versus low carb. I think the data shows that sugar is harmful in two ways. First of all, it rots your teeth, and that's incontrovertible, and that is a very significant health harm. But the second reason it's harmful is because it drives excess appetite. So the way I'd think about it is you can make a bowl of porridge uh, at home. You, could, it, it, you make it, make a bowl of sort of fairly plain cereal, take out one spoonful of cereal, replace it with an equal weight of sugar. Now, nutritionally, the bowl hasn't changed. You've just replaced carbs with carbs. But the taste means you will eat much more of the sweetened bowl. So sugar is essentially a flavor enhancer. The other bit of evidence is that sugar in, in liquid form because it doesn't provide any satiating calories, so soft drinks, those are a good example of you get a very rapid injection of calories that don't make you feel full at all. They spike your insulin and they may drive excess eating, but it's not because of some fundamental metabolic change. It's just because you've you fiddled around with your, your blood sugar levels. So sh- sugar is a big part of the picture, but ultra-processed foods are not just fatty, sugary, salty foods. So we we have this concept in the UK of HFSS, high fat salt sugar, as as the kind of foods that that we think we should avoid. It's really opaque what that means. So you you actually there is no list of those foods, and it's impossible for you to calculate from the packet whether or not a food is HFSS. You need a, a complicated formula, and you need information that you don't have access to from databases. So that's not very useful. There are traffic lights that are non-mandatory aren't on most of the foods and are somewhat confusing because lots of the junky cereals, for example, will have two oranges and a couple of greens. And those refer to an adult eating an adult portion, which is often unrealistically small. So fat, salt, sugar, the, the big question for the scientists who've studied UPF has been, is it just junky, fatty, salty, sugary food? Or do we just need to re- take out the salt and take out the sugar? So all of the epidemiological studies have made these statistical adjustments to, go, to, to try and understand that. And in fact, when we look at dietary patterns, if we, if we adjust for fat, salt, and sugar, all the effects of UPF on our health remain the same in significance and magnitude. In other words, the effect doesn't, the study doesn't change. So when we look at risk of dementia, early death, cancers, inflammatory bowel disease, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, uh, heart attacks, strokes, and weight gain, the fact that the proportions of fat, salt, and sugar in the UPF don't seem to make any difference, which is a clue that reformulating, I mean, you brought up these kind of weight loss products, they, that, you know, that's probably not going to work, and we're pretty sure that won't work. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF protect skin against damaging UV rays and continuously deliver three essential ceramides to help restore skin's protective barrier so it can lock in moisture. Non-greasy, fragrance-free, and won't clog pores? With CeraVe, skin feels hydrated and looks healthy all day. CeraVe Facial Moisturizers with SPF from the number one dermatologist-recommended facial moisturizer brand. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So you sort of touched on it there, but I'd like to think my diet's generally pretty good. Like cooking's one of my hobbies. I usually eat fresh food, but I do eat fast food sometimes. And I, I always find when I do, I'll be full for a very short amount of time and I'll become hungry again. So we, what's going on there? So got actually really good data going back to the 90s that when your food is soft and energy dense, you eat it at a, at a rate that's much higher than, than real food. And, and the, there are lots and lots of studies showing this is one of the most kind of important things determining appetite. Now, ultra-processed food, broadly, uh, there's this huge range of, 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 ca- of products. But one of the ways of thinking about it is you take waste from animal crops. So you've got, you grow corn and soy at massive scale. They're, they're phenomenally cheap, you know, but you know, you, you price them at pounds per ton and you crush those crops down and extract the oils and the carbs and the proteins. And then you have these basic molecules that have an infinite shelf life and you can ship them around the world and you can recombine them, add additives and create any shape or texture that you want from these sort of basic materials. And you can mix them with a bit of meat and some flavorings and you can make sweet things or sour things. And if you start to look at your breads, your protein bars, your breakfast cereals, your your, your ready meals, the, the list of ingredients is often quite similar. Now, because of the physical processing, the food is soft and it's kept very, very dry because that leads to shelf life. And shelf life is really important for, for profitability because it means your supply chain can, can be very, very prolonged. It can be nice and slow and cheap. So, and, and lots of the food will feel wet, like a burger will often feel it's juicy and there'll be gums and slick things in there and oils, but it's not wet at all. There's almost no mo- moisture content. Similarly, all those, those chewy bars that feel moist and wet, they're not, it's, it's things like glycerol. So you, you're just eating foods at a rate that your gut can't keep up with and you consume calories and they're digested some of the research shows they're digested so early in the gut they never even make it to the gut the bit of the gut that releases the hormones that tell you to stop eating so it's not just the rate of consumption it's that they've been reduced to such elemental forms they're absorbed very quickly and uh and you never really get the fullness signal people will recognize this from their own experience they don't satisfy you like if if you're fortunate enough to have grown up in a household that did have good, proper home cooking. And unfortunately, lots and lots of people were not able to grow up in a household like that. Yeah. So if say I'm out and about, I'm in a pinch, I haven't got much time. Is there, is there a good choice of fast food? You know, what, what would be like the sort of the top tier option to go for? I think one of the most kind of intriguing things about the takeover of UPF in our diet is it's entirely displaced lunch. There is, so I, I work in a hospital in UCLH in London, and there is not one single shop, whether I look at the fast sushi chains or the fancy sandwich shops or the, the shops that sell nice boxes of vegan food or, or the hospital canteen, it's all ultra processed. And that very standard British lunch of a sandwich, crispy, crunchy packet of stuff and a, and a soda pop. Uh, every single thing in there is is uh, ultra processed, and 
there is almost a kind of moral hazard where you go to the sandwich shop, you get your organic whole grain sandwich, and it might have some falafel between two pieces of bread, and you get a, a fizzy pop and, and some some maybe some baked crisps or some popcorn. That lunch is a solid 850 to 900 calories. It's more than if you just went to the the well-known burger chains and just had had a burger. The sandwiches are often 650 calories. The the double-tiered burgers, the big ones, are often only 500 calories. So the burger might make you less feel a bit less full, but you do know you're eating a burger. You know, you you're sort of going, okay, I'm I'm engaging with something a bit unhealthy here. There's a hazard with the sandwiches that we've come to think of that as a as a healthy lunch. Uh, it will predispose you to weight gain every bit as much as that burger. I'm not recommending everyone eat burgers for lunch. I'm just so my I do what I didn't do is give you a tip. I hate giving advice because I don't know how your life works. I'm I, I haven't got a life hack for you, and, and the book is very low on advice. I'll tell you what I do is I bring a pack of nuts and some tomatoes and uh, a couple of bananas, and that's that's my lunch now. When I, you know, if I'm that organised, or I have to run out and try and get some nuts. But yeah, you lose weight because you can't really buy lunch. So we've talked um, a lot about what UPFs are and and things like this, and you have touched on this briefly. But what are the major sort of harmful effects that we get from consuming UPFs? So there are several effects. I mean, the, the weight gain is one because of the the the, the flavor enhancers, the, the sugar, the calorie density. You know, we tend to consume calories at a high rate. And the marketing is a big part of that. The additives do have effects on some direct effects on our brains and also uh, on our microbiome. So we think the emulsifiers, emulsifiers, as lots of listeners will know, are molecules that bind fats to water. And some of them are gums and some of them are chemicals that are a bit like detergent. In a simple way, and this is this is a bit of a simplification, the emulsifiers, a bit like detergent, scrub out our guts. They remove, remove the layer of healthy mucus and they foster the growth of the less friendly, the more inflammatory bacteria living inside us. A lot of that work has been done in mice and people are not mice, it's important to say. But I do think when we're thinking about food additives, to say that something is safe, we should have a much higher threshold of evidence than to sort of worry about something being dangerous. So I, I personally think emulsifiers are a, are a bit of a concern. I think there's a big project now. The food industry have, uh, I, I think maybe I flatter myself, par partly in response to the book. I mean, the food industry have started quite a major pushback campaign, which they push through the charities that they fund that appear to be legitimate independent commentators, but really are entirely funded by the major food corporations. And what they're proposing is that they want to sort of reformulate this food and, you know, they'll, if it's too soft, they'll make it chewier. If the additives are doing harm, they'll replace them with safe additives. If they're damaging the microbiome, they can add probiotics. That isn't going to work because these foods have been put through a, a process of design that requires them to be overeaten. So I for the book, I spoke to loads of people within the food industry, and they were really decent, interesting, intelligent people, all of them. And many of them behind closed doors will say, well, we don't, we, we know this stuff is addictive, and we, we would rather not make it, but we can't be the first to act. We need a, a sort of level playing field. And many of them told me about a design process, which I'd also seen doing an investigation of the baby food industry for the BBC. The food is put through focus groups. 
And one of the things that is, you know, you've got box of cereal A and box of cereal B, and they're trying to, the scientists are trying to figure out which one goes to market. If the focus groups eat 5% more of box B, that's the one that goes to market because it's going to sell well. So it's not with the, with the commercial realities of the way the companies run, they can't manufacture foods that people eat less of. And that is, in the end, what real food is. It's food that you just eat a bit less of. And the companies can't pivot to just making money from real food because without the intellectual property there, they, these foods are just commodities. So several, I spoke to lots of beef and dairy farmers and they're all like, look, we make fancy organic grass-fed Wagyu beef, but it's priced the same as the cheapest possible intensively farmed beef. Because when people go into the supermarket, beef is beef is beef. Milk is milk. Broccoli is broccoli. So there's a market price for those things and, and the margins are so tight. So the way the food companies create money is by having brands and intellectual property they can charge money for. But So they're sort of compelled to make foods that we, we can't eat. So there's not going to be any one thing we can fix. It's, it's a mixture of the marketing the labeling, the fats, the additives, the palatability, the softness, all of it comes together to make a product a, a bit like I'm quite addicted to my phone. It's not one thing about the phone. It's the whole synesthetic experience. It's the camera and the apps and the feel in my hand and, and what I've been told about it. So it's we're not going to be able to, to fix the problem by simply adding more additives. So one thing that I've noticed um, is, is getting more and more popular is these meal replacement drinks for want of a better word and they'll they'll all come with claims like complete nutrition this is all you need i mean is there any truth in that i love this question i, I feel almost a kind of visceral rage about the marketing of some of these things here's a really interesting thing is there's certain foods that we're very sure associated with good health walnuts oily fish lots of fruit and veg the traditional mediterranean diet of a colorful plate and red wine has appeared to be associated with good health. Whenever we go to those foods and extract the vitamins, the molecules, the minerals, the, the resveratrol from the red wine or the polyphenols from the fruit and veg, the vitamins, whatever it is, the, the fish oils, and we do experiments on them, there is no benefit to having the molecules out of context. So food, real food, is a, is a very complex substance that your mouth must process. And as you chew it, you stimulate bone growth in your jaw, you start releasing gut hormones, some of the molecules are absorbed in the mouth, and then the individual vitamins and minerals are bound up with other molecules that carefully regulate the amount of them you get inside yourself, and everything is, your body has evolved to handle real food. When we dismantle this food, even if all the ingredients are there, it, it's not real food. So we have loads and loads and loads of data on this, that the nutritional supplements are almost always inferior to real food. And whether we're giving them in hospital uh, or to children uh, or to athletes, top athletes eat real food. If you go and speak to the, the nutritionists who advise our best sports teams, and I've spoken to lots of them, they just feed them food. You know, they, they're, not, they're not taking weird, weird supplements. So those those products are a very, very good example of using a sciencey type thing to add enormous value to basically waste. So a lot of them contain things like uh, whey protein or soy protein isolate. You'll read the protein isolates. These are just waste leftovers from 
dairy processing or making animal or pet food. And the project of the food industry has always been like, we've got these leftovers, we've got snouts and tails and these weird fats and seeds. And, and, and how can we add those things to the human food chain? And if we can add them at a premium and turn them into a sort of nutritional drink, you know, beef collagen is something you'll see in loads and loads of things. So that's from tendons. Tendons are not things in this country that we like eating for whatever reason some cultures do. But if you can, so you can either feed them to, to animals or you can break them down and turn them into a bodybuilding supplement and charge literally a thousand times more. So repurposing waste is a big part of the UPF story. The misconception I think is that we think, you and I probably think there's a food supply system that delivers food to us in exchange for money. And that's not the way it works. There is a money extraction system and the food is the byproduct of that. And we've got more and more evidence, you know, my my scientific collaborators all around the world are, are, are building a very, very persuasive case that the food industry in economic terms doesn't really function as a food supply system. Food is a sort of byproduct, but it's very, very good at doing commodity trading, intellectual property hoarding, franchising, rent seeking, all these different uh, share buybacks, this this process that we see in a lot of different industrial sectors, that's it's good evidence of money making. And food is their sort of money making specialist, they happen to produce a bit of food. So having said that, is there any role that the governments could play? Could we have stricter regulations or anything like that to help this problem? I think one of the narratives around food that's been so poisonous and almost the only, if, if people read the book and only take one thing away, it's that diet-related disease, particularly obesity, is not the fault of those who live with it. We do not choose the food we eat. We eat the food that's presented to us. So the only way, people who listen to this podcast, people who are able to buy the book, some of those people will be empowered to you know, do my project of like eat along, maybe quit the food, cut down, they'll have money. Lots of people can't, and we, we need government to do several things. We need to put this in our national nutrition guidance, we need to limit the marketing of this food. It's really important. And we need to change institutional food. But if there is only one thing that needs to happen, it's that we change our cultural understanding of what the food industry is. It's not that the companies are evil, but they will have to behave like the tobacco industry. And as long as doctors and scientists and our major food charities all partner deeply with the food industry and take money from them, we will never, ever solve the problem. So we need to see, I, I think, you know, and I have lots of colleagues who, who don't partner with the food industry, and we are essentially the, the regulators, and we are able then to evaluate the evidence independently. But and at the moment, the food industry pretty much writes UK food policy. All of our activist charities, or m many of our major activist charities, and lots of our health charities that people will recognize, if you go and look at their corporate partners, they will be the food companies that you will recognize as supplying what you think of as junk food and that that is that is ultra processed food so that very hard to legislate around that but very, it's going to happen i mean this is coming down the pipeline right the part of the reason the book is has some traction with people and people are talking about it is because i think actually the public are ready to go yes i feel like this is being forced down my throat i can't seem to lose the weight i feel addicted to these products i'm confused and they're recognizing that these companies are comparable to the tobacco industry. 
So in, in the book, you, you lay out in some detail your own experience with UPFs as, as in your diet and as you were studying more and more about them and how you changed your own dietary habits. So I know you said you don't like giving advice per se, but is there anything that you would suggest if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, you know what, I'd like to either cut out UPFs or just eat, eat fewer UPFs? So I would say, if, if first of all, if if you're, I don't have advice for anyone because I don't know your life, I don't know your budget, I don't know where you live, I don't know if you own a deep freeze, if you have storage space, if you have kitchen knives, or cutting boards, a, a fridge, I, I have no idea. And so advice is such. My mother-in-law says it's an uneasy commodity, and but I, I would say first of all, if you are struggling, you have my kind of love and support, and I'm I'm sorry, and that is that is we live in quite a violent food system in the sense it does physical harm. And you should feel a bit angry about that. You may find that whether you're listening to this podcast or you want to buy the book, my proposal is join this experiment. So you're, you didn't, you're doing at the moment the experiment that you're taking all the risk in the experiment of all these new molecules and new formulations of food. And my proposal is do the experiment for yourself so the companies get all the benefit. Start to taste the food, eat as you read, and you may find you stop wanting it. Because I think the real struggle for the, for, I think about half the listeners will recognize addictive like thoughts and behaviors around the food. And that that's pretty well evidenced. The, the difficulty is if you're trying to really quit an addiction that you still have, you're trying to quit smoking in the 1970s. You know, everyone around you eats this constantly. It is available constantly. It's in your cupboards at home. It's in the supermarket. There's no way of avoiding it. So the way I found it easy was just, you know, I was given this gift of being disgusted by this. And so I did it to my twin brother as well. And uh, I think that is the, the way out. Now, those, those people who aren't sort of struggling with the food or binging, those people may find moderation is fine. And, and I would think of this stuff as if you can afford it as being more like a treat on a Friday night, you know, at, having one glass of wine. And there are plenty of people who uh, maybe I shouldn't say this, but there are people who can smoke two cigarettes on a Friday night and enjoy them and just sort of savor them and then they don't have them the rest of the week. Lot, there are lots of moderate smokers. It's when you're smoking at 11 or drinking at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, th that's when you're being controlled by the product. So lots of people will be able to cut down. And, you know, my wife's quite a moderate person. I, I was very addicted to UPF. My wife will still just have a few pieces of chocolate on a Friday night. She She's one of those people who can wrap the bar back up, you know, and put it back in the cupboard. Whereas I'm someone who that is an impossibility for me. I would have to eat the entire supersized bar or the, or the whole bag of crisps. Dinah will have like three crisps, roll the crisp pack down and put a bulldog clip on it, which is, I don't understand. I have no idea what's going on in her brain. So some people may recognize that, that children are a real issue. You know, kids don't choose what they eat. They're very expensive and inconvenient to feed. And I spend a lot of my week batch cooking now, but I also feed my kids a lot of UPF. You know, I, I personally think this should not be, should not be banned. And a lot of people went, I want to really nuance that tobacco industry idea. The companies are behaving like the tobacco companies. They should be regulated. We can't tax this food. Yeah. Taxation would be incredibly regressive because it's all people can afford. So we need to make real food much, much cheaper. And that is a complex project, but that's going to have to happen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. 
To read more about the fascinating science and history of UPF, check out his book, Ultra-Processed People, Why Do We All Eat Stuff That Isn't Food? And Why Can't We Stop? The current issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.